0: Good morning, and thanks for uh, coming along. You know, Duncan did such an excellent job of explaining my topic this morning that uh, the best option is probably that I sit down and we spend the rest of the time singing, but I don't think I get away with that. And no, Johnny, I don't have any chocolate. Let's turn to our Bibles, uh, Exodus chapter three. Our topic this morning is how God redeems us and uh, the picture that is painted in Exodus chapter three and four. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, so I'm going to read two excerpts, one now and one a little later. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Hebron, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, the Lord called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites. Prezorites, Hivites, and Jesuits. And now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, what is His name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you." The book of Exodus is an extraordinary account of how the Israelites underwent a transformation from being uh, slaves and servants of the Egyptians to becoming the people of God. God had made a covenant or a promise to one of their ancestors, Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be God's special people and would inherit the land of Canaan what we know as Israel today. And we've heard already in this series, and do excuse me if I repeat a little bit from last week because I know there are a number of folk in here who weren't here last week. uh, We've heard already how the Egyptian rulers were concerned that the Israelites were getting too numerous and could pose a potential threat to the security of Egypt. So first they introduced slavery. They, They enslaved the Israelites who had come 400 years earlier to escape a famine. And the Israelites were deprived of their freedom, and over a period of time, their place just got worse and worse and worse. They were made to work in the fields, perhaps pumping water out of the Nile to irrigate those fields. Do you know, it's quite, Egypt is quite a remarkable country. If you're to look on Apple Maps or Google Maps on the, on the satellite version, you'll see that it's a huge country, but most of the population is concentrated along the banks of the Nile. The rest is desert, and yet there's something like 80 or 90 million people living there. So the Nile River was crucial to the survival of the Egyptians. So the children of Israel are then used to build cities as using slave labor. But despite this persecution, their numbers continue to grow, it got to the point where Pharaoh introduced the instruction to kill every baby boy who was born to the Israelites, and infanticide or. Infant, infant homicide was introduced to control that population. We heard last week how the baby Moses escaped that persecution in a wicker basket and was brought up in the royal uh, palace. Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin actually gives, a, encapsulates that uh, extraordinary period in Moses' life. It says, at the time Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house, then he was placed in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egyptians and was powerful in words and action. Moses had privilege, wealth, and power, a man of influence, protected by his status in the royal household. That was Stephen's summary in the book of Acts of Moses. Egypt at that time was a superpower in the region, but it had many uh, enemies who attacked its borders and nibbled away at its territories, and it was fear of the Israelites siding with some of those enemies, perhaps, that drove Pharaoh and and his uh, successors to embark on a policy of slavery and infanticide. Egypt was polyamorous, that is, it it worshipped many gods, and Archaeologists have found reference over 1,500 gods in the culture of Egypt during this period of history, 1,500 different gods. So the Egyptians did not believe in a single Creator God. Instead they had a a complex pattern of gods that represented almost every aspect of human activity. They had one for water, one for the sun, one for the wind, one for burial, one for death, the Egyptians created their gods essentially to meet their own needs. This is the absolute antithesis of the Christian worldview, where we believe in a God who created and ordered everything in the universe. We don't make up the rules, He does. Our God lives and cares for His creation, but He's also a God of righteousness and a God of wrath. He can't simply stand and ignore the the state that men and women and this humanity are in. They've ignored and disobeyed His laws, the laws that He gave to enable mankind to live to their full potential. And as a righteous God, He must respond and punish that sin, that revolt against Him. He simply can't pretend that sin doesn't exist. And that's where the concept of redemption mentioned in our title comes in. Our revolt against God, our, our sin against His laws cannot be ignored by Him. Yet God in His mercy and grace had a plan to redeem men and women. Redemption means to buy back or to repurchase, as as Duncan has illustrated to us. And our sins had alienated us from God and His love. He had created the human race for fellowship with Him. Sin entered in and broke that fellowship, and now God wants to buy back that fellowship. And our redemption came at a huge price to God. He sent his son to bear the punishment for our sins, to pay the price of our revolt against heaven. So while the Egyptians could choose whichever God suited the circumstances on their particular needs at the time, we can't. The God of the Bible is real and must be responded to. We either accept his plan of redemption, or we can face the consequences of our sins from a God of wrath. There are parallels, I suppose, with our culture and that of Egypt in our society today. A majority of people in Western society have rejected or chosen to ignore the claims of our Creator God. Instead they worship at their own altars, the altar of Manon, the, the digital altar of TikTok or Meta or Twitter and all of those other things that take our minds away from what is really important. The love and pursuit of material things gets precedent over spiritual matters. In such a society, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ and his message of redemption get heard? Well, perhaps we'll see some lessons from the life of Moses this morning. We heard last week that uh, Moses murdered an Egyptian. When he thought no one was looking, he buried the body. But very quickly it comes to the attention of not just the Israelites who witnessed the killing, but Egyptian authorities. And despite his position of power and influence in the royal palace, he becomes a hunted man. He quickly flees from Egypt. He travels several hundred ma- <coughs> miles to a land called Midian. It's located in what we know as the Sinai Peninsula today. And there he works as a shepherd. He's married and two sons. So he'd spent 40 years in this very privileged position in the royal palace. Now he spends 40 years in a role as a shepherd. Now, I know a little bit about sheep. There's nothing glamorous about looking after them. In my teens, I used to work on a sheep farm, and it was all about foot rot and shearing and maggots. There was just nothing glamorous. And yet, here he was spending this huge amount of his life doing this stuff. And whenever God uh, God calls him in the burning bushes, we've read this morning, he's now 80 years of age. He's out with uh, his flock one day when something spectacular happens. This bush is on fire, and yet it's not being consumed. He goes over to look more closely, and as we've read, God speaks to him out of the burning bush and said, take your sandals off for the place you're standing is holy ground. God introduces himself to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why did God wait 40 years to call Moses? We don't know, but maybe it was Moses had to learn a lot of lessons about humility and ordinary life. Maybe it was because if he'd gone back earlier than 40 years, they might have remembered Moses as a murderer and dealt with him at that point. So what was Moses' response? that day, Moses had a vision of God that started him on a spiritual pilgrimage. He had to wait to see God's glory. He had to serve those 40 years as a shepherd and experience what a tangled and disillusioned thing life can be. And then he turned to see God in the burning bush, and that changed his life forever. Later, Moses was to have more exalted visions of God, visions of glory Uh, of God on Mount Sinai, uh, splendor in the tabernacle, but this is where it started. This is where Moses begins his journey. And when someone encounters God, it throws them out of their comfort zone. C.S. Lewis said, God is good, but God is not safe. And it's a similar experience when we turn to Christ and meet Him. Our world is turned around, and instead of Our primary purpose of serving self, we are serving a sovereign God. We experience His love and His care in a new way and our focus shifts from matters of earth to matters of eternity. Just as God had to redeem the Israelites from Pharaoh and Egypt, so through Christ's death we are redeemed. The price of our sins has been paid through Christ's death on the cross. In verse 6, Moses asks, the not unreasonable question. Who should I say that you are? If you're wanting me to go to the Israelites, who should I say uh, that you are? And uh, that's not an unreasonable question because bear in mind the, the Egyptians and the culture that Moses was brought up in, each of these gods had a name. Each of these functions that gods looked over had a name. So, Moses naturally asked, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out the the Israelites? Who will I tell them that you are? And God says, I will be with you. Then Moses said, supposing uh, I go and ask and and tell them, uh, what's your name? And bear in mind, it had been 400 years since the Israelites left Canaan to come to Egypt to escape the famine. A few families then now are probably measuring in their millions. The memories of God of their fathers would have dimmed. The Israelites would have been familiar with the names of the gods of the Egyptians. As I said, all of these gods had names. God's answer is devastatingly simple to Moses. I am who I am. Now, it might seem at first nonsensical to refer to oneself with the phrase, I am who I am. Yet it reveals something important about God that he is no equal. God is saying, I am real, I am present, I am consistent. The name I am has within it the idea that God is completely independent, he relies on nothing for life or for existence. It means that God doesn't need anybody or anything. Life is in Himself. It's connected with the idea that God is eternal and unchanging. God exists outside the time and space of our universe. And interestingly, the Lord Jesus Christ repeats this phrase during His ministry, I am. When I was preparing for this uh, talk, I came across a song on YouTube. Called a new name written down in glory. It's sung by Charity Gill, a beautiful hymn. And in that hymn, she talks about a new creation uh, in Christ. Having accepted Christ, I've become a new creation. The old is gone, there is new life. I live by faith, not by sight. There is a new name written down in glory. And it's mine. I've met the author of my story. And the chorus goes, I am… Who I am, because the I am tells me who I am. And when we come to Christ, we become new creations. God gives us power to live a new life on earth. We referred to it in our communion service this morning. But it's not just here on earth we get this eternal life. and As the song says, we have our names written in God's book of life. Read Revelation chapter 19. God gives me a new identity. I am who I am, because the I am tells me who I am. God had instructed Moses to go back to Egypt to tell the elders and the Israelites, and Moses asks yet not another unreasonable question, but if they don't believe me, God, uh, what what will I say? They don't know you, God, and they certainly don't know me. And God gives Moses three proofs or three superpowers. The first was a wooden staff turning into a snake. The second was a leprous hand healing, and the third was the water turning into blood. As I was preparing for this talk, I came across uh, someone giving a, a, a similar talk and he said, even in these three tests, we see a picture of Christ. When we read of a snake in the Bible, we think of sin or evil or the devil. And here we see the snake Defeated and dead, from stick to snake back to a dead stick, just as Christ on the cross defeated sin and death. The leprous hand coming into the cloak, out of the cloak as leprosy, being healed, reminds us of the miracles of Jesus when he, on several occasions, demonstrated his life changing powers. And the third test was the turning water to blood, to death. We don't see that combination of water and blood. And death again until Jesus dies on a Roman cross to release His people from the wages of sin. But Moses still hadn't finished giving up reasons why he couldn't go. He says to God, but I'm, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. And God's starting to lose patience with Moses. God would have known how eloquent he was in those 40 years in the palace. But God responds to that and said, I'll give you a brother Aaron and he will speak you, and I will give you the words. So, as we come towards the end of our talk, we look at the life of Moses. What lessons are there in his character for us? Moses was not an obvious leader in that second part of his life from 40 to 80. But in his first 40 years, God had prepared him for leadership. He had given him a site of governance and insight into how peoples could be ruled. And sometimes in our own lives, we may want to serve God. We may want to be leaders for Him, and it's not always obvious. But you know, that second 40 years uh, were the low point in his life, and yet God was preparing, changing his character so that he could serve God when the right time came for that final period of his life. Moses died when he was 180. From his 80th year to his 120th year, he led the people, the children, of Israel. So ultimately he obeyed God and put his trust in Him. So if you as a young Christian are looking for ways in which you can serve the Lord, remember His timing may not be your timing. And be patient and ready to respond to His call. So what has this account really been about? It's not just a story of God rescuing His people from slavery and slavery and repression, yet it's an amazing story, a magnificent story. It's, it's not just about Moses being a superhero, turning from a nobody in the desert to one of the most exceptional leaders in the Old Testament or perhaps in all of history. It's about the biggest problem we have. How can we be rescued from the, the penalty of our sin How can we be redeemed from lives diminished by sin and selfishness? How can we be restored to the original point of creation, to have lives that are centered on worshiping and communing in fellowship with God our Father? This passage is ultimately all about Jesus, an early picture of God's plan for redemption for the human race. And at the end of the passage we've been reading, time has beaten me on chapter 4. We see Moses and his brother Aaron bring together the leaders of the Israelites. They've gone back into Egypt, Moses has obeyed God. And we read that the leaders of the Israelites, their elders, they listened, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. What's our reaction this morning uh, as we consider not only what God has done for His people, Israel? what God has done for us on the cross. Those of us who have given our lives to Christ through simple faith, accepting that gift, as Duncan has so excellently illustrated this morning, accepted that gift of forgiveness, can see from this passage that we are called from sin to freedom so that we can worship God. Romans chapter 14 verse 9 says, God demonstrates His love for us in that while We were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Thank you.